There's this thing called the two-body problem. It sounds like, oh, I got two bodies in the fridge. I need to <laughs> find a place that'll let me move those. Does you haul out? I only got time to dig a hole for one body, but not two bodies. <laughs> Real problem. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we discuss the right and wrong ways to contact potential postdoc advisors. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 60. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Welcome back, Dan. Yo, Josh. Yeah, we're a little bit late, but here we are. Yeah, life happens sometimes. It's, it's been busy. Have you, have you been well? I have been pretty well, Dan. Looking forward to the election being over soon, yeah. one way or the other. Uh, it's coming up very quickly. Everybody get out there and vote. That's all we can say. Also, Dan... Big news today, we are actually recording this on Sunday, and last night was the end of Daylight Savings Time. Woo! Hope everybody enjoyed their extra hour. Um, I'm, I'm about to punch you. I read, I read the news, uh, and they said, get an extra hour of sleep. Do they know that I have a four-month-old? Like, the baby doesn't say, oh, I could get up and scream now, but I'll give you this extra hour. I got no extra time to sleep. Yeah, you're so right. Having a kid changes the calculus entirely on yeah. <laughs> falling back an hour. It used to be the greatest thing ever, like an, a day with 25 hours. Oh, it was yeah. so amazing. And now it just sleep means, in. oh, I'm woken up at what's 5 a.m. instead of 6 a.m. So. Yeah, I'm, I think we got to get rid of daylight savings time. It, it just doesn't make sense. Well, hold that thought, Dan. Okay, holding it. Let's talk about our beer, Dan. I spent the weekend at my alma mater in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I picked up a nice Virginia beer that I know you are going to be excited to try. It's not from that place. <laughs> there, yeah, there was a brewery you did not like. We won't name names. Yeah, but. this is not that one, but you know, Dan, with the fall in full swing, it's pumpkin beer time. Oh, my gosh. And this is not just any pumpkin beer. This is the Twisted Gourd Imperial Chocolate Chai Pumpkin Ale. Oh my gosh. Is it pumpkin spice? It's got everything nice. For, and, uh, for people who can't see Josh right now, he's wearing Ugg boots and <laughs> yoga pants and... My Lululemon, is yeah, that? Lululemon, yeah. yeah. That's what it is. Uh, so this is Lululemon. <laughs> really trendy. Oh man. Okay, can I try it? Uh, well, this is from, taste? Well, let me tell our listeners, this is from South Street Brewery in Charlottesville, Virginia, Dan. Give it a taste and let me know if you taste the chocolate, the chai, or the pumpkin. All the above. It's actually quite tasty. I mean, it is a, it is like eating a piece of pumpkin pie. It's a little desserty. Yeah, so I bought this from the beer section of the cheese shop in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is a great place if you ever get a chance to go there. But the uh, the guy behind the counter, very knowledgeable about beers, and he was excited I was buying this one, and he told me it was an award winner. I don't remember what award it won. Which but cheese shop? <laughs> the cheese shop, Dan. That's actually the name That's of it. That's the name. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. I think this is good. I've, I do feel like I can actually pick up chai spices, chocolate, and pumpkin. There is actually a little bit of a, a spice burn to it, and then the very ending is the bitterness of the chocolate. It's well, good. I think I might have mentioned last year. I love to make pumpkin pie this time of year. This actually makes me want to experiment around with maybe adding some cocoa to the pumpkin pie. Do you think that might be a chocolate pumpkin pie? Some people just want to watch the world burn, Josh. <laughs> All right, Dan, I've got a couple announcements before we get into it. 
Um, the first thing is Thanksgiving is coming up soon, and what we want to do in an upcoming show, maybe even our next show, is we want to talk a little bit about what's good with grad school. Yeah, we, we did a whole series this year about modern PhD and ways to change the graduate experience. Um, probably should do the other side of that coin, right? Yeah, as we, as we shift to being thankful and, and reflecting on what we're thankful for, at least for our American Thanksgiving here in the United States, I just want to put out there, if you're a grad student now or you are a grad student, just write to us, tweet to us, doesn't have to be long. What do you like or did you like about being a grad student? And we'll talk about it on the show. Excellent. Well, I'll look forward to that. Some some good news. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, I'm going to be at the Abercams conference in Tampa this Wednesday I'm, through I'm sorry. Sunday. I'm sorry, what? The ABRCMS, that's the Annual Biomedical Research Conference for Minority Students, put on by NIH and the American Society for Microbiology. Abercams. Like Abercams. So I'll be in Tampa Wednesday through Sunday. If any of our listeners are there, come by the UNC table, look me up, and I would love to say hello. Cool. You do get to travel. I like that. I do. I enjoy it. I enjoy meeting people. I was actually at the Human Genetics Conference um, in Vancouver not too long ago, and a couple people came up to me who said they heard the show. So that was neat. Humans have genetics now? Well, apparently. Well, that's, there's a whole meeting about it. That's cool. That is really cool. And and it is fun that you know people are listening here across this country, but also around the world. So maybe we need to book a trip somewhere uh, even further. Well, that's actually... Um, Good foreshadowing, too, because we're going to talk about an email from a PhD student in Australia who's a listener today. Well, I'm full of foreshadowing today. So so get us back to the foreshadowing I guess I made about daylight savings time. Yep. Let's get into it. Science in the news. All right, Dan, as we talked about, daylight savings time is over, and I guess we're back to standard time now. So does that mean this is like... The real time. I don't right know. Now. It, it does not make any sense to me at all. I don't understand what uh, the argument. I think originally was that it was for farmers or something. Yeah, I think it had something to do or energy efficiency. Yeah, I've heard a lot of different. I've stories. heard a lot of different stories too. I've also heard things about kids waiting for the bus and it's too cold. I actually have no idea what it is, but it's entrenched in our civilization. It is, and. There have actually been a few people that have put out a call for actually eliminating standard time altogether and making daylight savings time permanent. And for those, for people in that camp, they might enjoy this new research that came out from some psychiatry researchers in Denmark. And so they recently did a study, and they actually were surprised that no one had done this study. But they looked at this huge database of psychiatric diagnoses from 1995 to 2012. And they actually did an analysis of 185, over 185,000 depression diagnoses. And what they found was that right at the time when this time change that we just went through, where we fall back an hour, right around that time, there's 8% greater incidence and diagnosis of depression than there normally would have been when controlling for other factors. Okay, so yeah, my first thought was, days are getting shorter, we're very tied to the number of hours of sun we receive, maybe depression just happens at this time of year? Or did they look at other countries that maybe don't have daylight savings time, and it turns out people don't have this spike in depression? Well, you know, that was actually what I hoped they did, was maybe as a good Come control. Come on, scientists. Um, and I have to admit, I didn't dig too deeply into the primary literature on this one. Uh, I don't think they did that, but they did control for some other factors, because I think in general, the incidence of depression goes up as the amount of daylight decreases. Um, right, there are 
parts of the world where it stays dark pretty much all winter and then people sit in front of um daylight bulbs to try and get a little bit of that circadian yeah, goodness back. Absolutely. And and so this was purely a study looking at correlation. So they only speculated that perhaps the reason there was increased incidence of depression right at the time of this falling back an hour did have to do with with less sunlight. And so one reason to maybe fall back an hour is we have increased daylight in the morning, but oftentimes people are spending that time either still in bed or getting ready for work or in the car uh, versus these afternoon times when people are actually coming home from work. You know yourself, Dan, it's already dark by the time you get home from yeah, work. I hate it. I hate that time of year when you it's 4 p.m. and it gets dark out. Yeah, and it's worth, it's worth saying one thing they did do is they compared, uh, they wanted to make sure it wasn't just time change in general that threw people off. So they actually did look at data from the spring time change when we go forward an hour into daylight savings time, and there was no impact there. Although my thought was, well, that's spring, and maybe in general people are happier in the spring. Yeah. I don't know. Josh, I think technology is going to solve this for us because you've probably also seen the research about looking at our iPads and iPhones and screens during the night and how it's all that blue light is throwing off yeah, our that's true. brain rhythms. So I assume it'll kind of all bounce out. <laughs> we just won't sleep at all. <laughs> right. Problem solved. More time to stare at our iPads. There you Replace go. Replace sunlight with iPad light. Uh, if you guys want to read more about this, we'll post a link in the show notes. All right, Dan, let's get into our topic today. So as I mentioned, we had a listener question from a PhD student, Tessa, from Australia. Awesome. Uh, do you want me to read this one? Yeah, why don't you read it for us, Dan? Okay. It says, hi, Dan and Josh. Firstly, thank you for the podcast. I really enjoy listening to your show because you always go beyond the obvious and really delve into the heart of the subject matter to provide valuable advice to PhD students like me. Has Tessa heard the show before or... I don't know, maybe she was mistaking us for a different show. Probably a different show. Go on. Okay. I'm very close to finishing my PhD in physics. All right, congrats. By the way, your podcast is great to listen to while I was doing menial work like fixing figures and citations for my thesis. It's keeping me sane. I think that's our main, I think that's the main service we provide is passing the time while you're doing... Yeah, something so you don't have to think about the things, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the menial labor. Yeah. Uh, I would love to know your thoughts on cold calling academics in the job hunt. I know this is done a lot, but personally, I always feel a little awkward reaching out to researchers at the top of their field who've never met before. Some of the questions I've been pondering are, how might the first email sound, whether or not you should ask directly about opportunities to work together or just express interest in what they do, how to explain how my research interests align with theirs in a few words, how to stand out amongst the crowd, and whether there are things I should be doing like creating an online presence, webpage, etc., Thanks again for the show. I really appreciate the effort you two invest to make the life of grad students a little nicer and endurable. Cheers, Tessa. So basically the question is, Tessa is looking for a postdoc and she says, how do I get in touch with people so that they will respond to me, that they'll notice me, and that they'll recognize that I have something to offer their lab? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And this is really a moment that a lot of people out there will eventually come to who are in grad school. We know that a lot of grad students go on to postdocs, and at some point they will have to take the first step to contact people they might want to work with. Well, let's be honest. It's not just postdocs. Anytime you are, are angling for a new job anywhere, you're going to have to get in touch with people. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And a lot of the advice here will be useful and pertinent no matter what type of job you're looking for after grad school. But the other thing I like about this question is, in my opinion, Dan, there is a right and a wrong way to do this. And so I thought we could just jump right into it. Well, and there, and there are going to be some cultural differences, I suppose, between 
the academic world and the business world. So let's let's get going. So Tessa mentioned specifically contacting academics. So I'm going to focus on on that mostly today. But you're absolutely right, Dan. I think it's a totally different game um, looking for jobs, perhaps in, in industry. Um, that might be a topic for another day. Yeah. So any uh, communication you address to an academic, I assume you start with, hey, nerd, right? <laughs> That's right. Is that the opener? Hello, my nerd brother. All right. So I'd be remiss, Dan, before we jump into this, if I didn't say the first thing you really need to do before contacting potential postdoc advisors is to really think about whether you need to do a postdoc in the first place. So putting the time in, I know we beat this horse a lot. It's dead, Josh. It's dead. (laughs) But spend the time in grad school thinking about who am I? What are my interests? What's a good career fit for me? And then do I need a postdoc to get there? Don't just do a postdoc by default. Postdoc can be really great. I enjoy being a postdoc quite a bit, but don't just do one by default because you haven't thought about what you actually want to do. Episode 20. Episode 20, do I really need a postdoc? So check that out first if you haven't done that. But let's say you've thought about it and you know, you know, I really do need a postdoc for where I want to go. So then the next thing you really want to make sure you do is you've also put thought in to what you want and need to get out of your postdoc and what it is you want to study. So what are your interests? You know, one cool thing about being a postdoc in academic science, at least, is, you know, you could continue on and do the same type of research you did before if you think it's really great still. But if you don't, it's a, it's a great transition point for you to reinvent yourself. Think, you know what, I kind of am interested in this thing over here. haven't been doing that, but I might want to go try it. And you can actually do that. And as a physicist, basically all science is your domain, right? That's right. You could really connect chemistry with Chemistry is physics, biology is chemistry, everything is physics. Absolutely. And so, so it's just important to note that the postdoc you do or the academic research position you do after grad school does not necessarily have to be exactly in line with what you did as a grad student. But what's going to be important is being able to explain exactly why you're moving in the direction you're moving in, especially if that ends up being a different direction. Um, So, you know, also thinking about what direction career-wise are you moving towards, or at least do you think you're moving towards at this time? So do you want to be a PI yourself and have your own lab? Do you want to do more teaching? Do you want to move towards industry? Um, Because actually the answer to that question might change a little bit um, what type of lab, what type of postdoc you want to do. And here's an example. This was true for me. So when I started my postdoc, when I was looking for postdocs, I knew that the job I thought I wanted at the time was to become a faculty member at a smaller liberal arts school, or maybe I did some research, but also more teaching. So as a grad student, I did lots of animal models, lots of you know intense immunology, and that type of research you just can't do at a small university. So I knew I needed to look for labs where I was doing more simple model systems um, that maybe could be done with the resources at a smaller university. So those are just the types of things. If you want to do industry, maybe looking for a university close to a lot of biotech industry so you could get those experiences, um, whatever it is. So think about that. And then the last thing before we even contact anyone is where do you want to live? Is that important to you? Some people may be restricted geographically. There's this thing called the two-body problem. That's an episode. <laughs> that's an episode yeah. we really should do. I always think that's like a really downer should negative explained. way. Two-body problem, meaning you have a, a spouse or a significant yeah, other. Yeah, you have a that... spouse or significant other who also needs to find a job. And I'm like, hey, you've got this person that you not care like... about. That's not really a problem. That's a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, two bo- it sounds like, oh, I got two bodies in the fridge. I need to... <laughs> Find a place that'll let me move those. Does you haul out? I only got time to dig a hole for one body, but not two bodies. Real problem. (laughs) It's getting very macabre. So anyway, think about all those things. But at this point, 
you know, you've determined that you want to do a postdoc. One other thing that I think is a good thing to do to even identify who you want to email, and this actually can move towards making that initial contact even more straightforward, is utilize your network a little bit as you're thinking about people you might want to work with. So depending on the field, the general research area you want to be in, if you know some researchers in that area, talk to them, say, hey, this is what I'm interested in. Do you know of any colleagues that you think would be a good fit for me based on my interests? And what's kind of cool about that is one, you know, they might know not just who's doing that research, but they might know things like, oh, they tend to have postdocs in their lab who go on and are successful or, oh, people in their lab seem to be happy or so-and-so is a nice person. Yeah. Cold calling is tough and because it's cold, right? Um, But knowing somebody who knows somebody, you know, that's a... In sales, you would call that a warm lead or um, you would ask somebody to warm up the lead for you. But anyway, I'm much more likely to talk to you if my friend has asked me to than if you randomly enter my inbox. Yeah, and we'll get there. And and definitely that's something you can include in your email. So let's, let's get into it, Dan. So I think that email definitely is the way to go for this first contact. It's a good start. Yeah. So, you know, back in the day, I think the way that it was done was it was fairly typical to actually mail this packet to potential people you wanted to work with. So you could print out a cover letter and you'd send your CV and maybe you'd even send a copy of your dissertation or a paper you did. And you'd send all this out by mail, paper copies. um, Just $11 per (laughs) envelope. Priority mail, whatever. You know, my opinion, and I've talked to some faculty or I've heard them talk about this, that's not really the way to go anymore. I think sometimes people think, oh, That'll help me stand out from the crowd because email is so, the bar is so low time-wise to do it. So it shows that you really want it by printing stuff out. But, you know, the reality is, and you could probably speak to this, Dan, if you guys all think about it. When I get mail, mail's dead, really. Like, I, I'm i more likely, I'm not going to miss an email. I'm going to see the email. I might miss mail because sometimes people don't really keep up with their physical mail that much anymore yeah it's true i mean you can certainly ignore email and i think we'll we'll talk about ways to get around that but yeah you you get you get a packet of mail and you say to yourself oh there's like four papers in here i'm not gonna take the time right now but maybe i'll get to it and then the pile gets higher no absolutely and i think you know i think sometimes students are worried that an email seems too informal but really i think email is the preferred way to go and and actually better also than actual cold calling so picking up the phone informal would be like all emoji text that would (laughs) don't don't do that email's fine lol yeah looking for a postdoc do you just the letter u have space in your your ur lab all right so so what do you put in that email this is by far the biggest piece of advice that i have uh, for writing that email avoid making your email seem generic. Avoid making your email seem like an email that you probably copied and pasted and blasted out to a hundred different PIs. So like an example might be, and and the reason this is bad is PIs actually get a lot of emails like this. I actually, even though I don't have my own lab, I will regularly get several emails a month saying, hi, Dr. Hall, I'm really interested in your work. Would you have space in your lab? I mean, clearly, I'm a name that they found <laughs> somewhere on the web, and they're just copy emailing paste, it copy to everyone. Copy, paste, copy, paste. So you don't want to be generic at all, right? And hopefully you're not. You know, you've identified the specific person you want to work with, and you're tailoring your email to them. But I have to say, the 
easiest way to get your email deleted and not read is for it to look generic. Dear Dr. Hall, I have heard about your amazing research in the sciences. I would love to work with you. Sincerely. Yeah. And people do that, yeah. right? People actually do that. But here's what you should well, do. People love the sciences, Josh. That's all <laughs> I can say. <laughs> Very I, fascinating. I read your most recent paper and found it fascinating. In that journal that you published <laughs> recently. I love that journal of that science. But here's what you should do. Okay, so... Avoid be gen- being generic, but be specific. This goes back to utilizing your network. If you have some personal connection with that person, absolutely put that up front. So you could say, hey, Dr. So-and-so, you may not remember me, but we met at this conference. Or I saw your talk at this yeah, conference. Or, yeah, or I was too. in the audience of your talk and thought it was great. Or you could say, you know, you collaborated with my lab. Or even um, your colleague, so-and-so suggested that I get in touch with you based on my interests. So if you have any of those connections at all, certainly put that up front because that will ensure that your email is probably going to be read. Yeah, it'll take a little more time, but better than you know spamming a thousand inboxes and getting nothing back. Mm-hmm. And then be specific about who you are and why you contacted that person in the first place. So you, know, you can introduce yourself. So Tessa could say, hi, I'm Tessa. I'm finishing up my PhD in physics within the next year. And I'm interested in pursuing research career in hopefully whatever the specific field of that person is. And I would love to discuss the possibility of doing a postdoc in your lab. So one of the things Tessa asked, should you ask directly that you're hoping to work with that person or just express interest in what they do? You want to be clear of why you're sending the email. So now is, I mean, because really that is the point. You're not saying, oh, I think what you do is really cool. Can we talk more about it? No, I mean, I think you want to say up front, I'm looking for a postdoc. I'm about to graduate. I'm interested in working with you. And this is why. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I would, for the informational interview where you are really doing exploration, then you don't ask for a position. But I don't think that's what she's doing here. I think what she's doing is trying to find out if somebody has uh, the funding available, the resources mm-hmm. available, the space available to offer a postdoc. So I think it makes sense to just, if, if they're, they say, oh, my grants are all gone. Mm-hmm. Thanks for writing. She can say, great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the other thing that you kind of include in that is you want to talk about why you want to join that lab. And so, again, we're being very specific. So hopefully you have actually at this point read some papers by the PI and there's some reason that you think that work is interesting. And so, you know, you want to make it obvious that you've done your research, that you're familiar with the work that that person's doing. Um, what I'm not saying is you don't want to write up a two-page report on here's what your papers say Um, but make it clear you did your work and that it makes sense that you know what their lab does and that it really does fit with with what you say because if you say hey you know i really want to do particle physics um, but then that lab doesn't really do that at all then that's you can think of another kind of physics could you that's the only kind i know (laughs) astro is that yeah astrophysics um that's two. There are two physics. That's two, yeah. Newtonian. A, write to us if there are other types of physics. <laughs> I doubt if anybody's doing Newtonian physics. And we just lost all of our physics listeners. Yeah, um, glad, um, glad they listened. Yeah, so that's kind of the email. So we're being specific. If we have any personal connections to the person or we've met them before, even if we were just in the audience, say that up front. Be clear why you're contacting them, that you are looking for a postdoc, uh, but then be very specific about why you contacted them, how what you are interested in is a good overlap with what they do. All right. Then the other thing you want to do is actually attach your updated CV to that email. So, you know, I actually think it's a good idea for grad students and postdocs as you go. Um, maybe you do a presentation or you you know, get a publication. Go ahead and keep that CV updated so it's really not a big job to 
really put it together when you need it. Um, but you do want to make sure your CV is updated. And there are a couple of things I really want to mention here. We actually could do a whole episode on CVs, but a couple of key things for this specifically. If you're a senior grad student, it's pretty well accepted that you're probably finishing things up. You know, a lot of times in grad school, you may finish some of your post you may finish some of your manuscripts at the very end or some of them may not come out till after you're done. That's totally okay. Um, so specifically as a senior grad student, it's okay for your publications to list manuscripts that are in preparation or maybe that are in press but aren't totally out yet. Totally acceptable to do that. So even if you're in the process of kind of writing it up, you can go ahead and put it on there showing when I graduate, I intend to have these two or three publications. Great. And then the other thing, besides making sure your publications are up to date and you include publications you're working on, um, also make sure your references are up to date. And so you especially want to make sure your PhD thesis advisor is on there, unless you have some extenuating circumstances that might prevent this. Um, If that's the case, um, you're probably going to have to explain that eventually. Is it normal to include references without being asked in the academic world? Yeah, so I think it's pretty typical. You want to have your your references on there, and and I mean it's pretty straightforward in academia who that's going to be. I mean, I mean really the main person is your your. Theme. But it's expected if it's not there, they would say that's weird. Where are their references? Yeah, and you know it's it's a little different in in the business world or in the work world than academia because I think the typical way of doing things with jobs outside of academia is if I'm looking for and getting this job. That means I'm probably leaving this other job pretty right. quickly. So you might want to avoid, you know, I don't want somebody calling my boss saying, oh, so-and-so listed you as a reference because they might say, what? You're looking for another job. But in academia, especially for grad students, like they know you're looking for The jobs, expectation is that you'll get They're actually there, yeah. probably glad that you're looking for jobs, yeah. right? Uh, so that's okay. And, you know, a good story for why this is important is one thing that's likely to happen. Um, I remember when I was emailing potential postdoc mentors, Uh, I remember one day I fired off an email to a potential postdoc advisor. I was sitting at my desk and my PI's office was right in the lab. And so his phone rang and I could kind of overhear him having this conversation. And it was the person I had just emailed five minutes later, picked up the phone and called my thesis advisor and was asking about me. So it's very possible. That's one of the first things. Hopefully you behaved that day and he wasn't mad. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? Like that loser. So one of the things that Tessa also asked is how do I stand out amongst the crowd? And, you know, as I mentioned, PIs, some PIs may get lots of emails about working with them as a postdoc. But honestly, if you do all the things we just talked about, you know, you write a specific and direct email, why you want to work with that person specifically, you attach your CV that's updated, you're already going to be in probably the top 10% at least of correspondences they get about doing a postdoc. So um, chances are, if you follow these strategies, you're going to be okay. And you'll probably get a response um, that either says, let's set up a time to talk over the phone in some more detail, or let's set up an in-person interview, or you know, you may get a response back that says, I don't have funding right now for a postdoc, but... Um, you are more optimistic than I am about people responding to the first email you send. Is it is it traditional that in academia you will actually reply to emails you get? I get very nice emails from people and sometimes I forget to reply for six weeks. And if they don't email me again saying, hey, remember we were going to talk or, or I really wanted to find out if you had a position open, I, I, I think, oh, yeah, I meant to do that and I wanted to. It's just totally slipped to my mind. So I would say you, it would make sense to have some plan for if I don't hear back in this amount of time to reach out with another very cordial, like no guilt, no um, 
don't heap it on their head, but just say, Hey, I, I sent you this email. Would love to talk. Still really interested in the work you do. Mm-hmm. Let me know if it's possible. And I would even go so far as to say, if you don't hear back from that one, to to try a phone call. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. Maybe in that follow-up, even replying to the original email so it's right there in one spot. Because I think back on when I was emailing potential postdoc mentors, I probably emailed five or six people. And I would say there were only maybe one who just I never heard back from. And so maybe one one idea is don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Hopefully you're identifying multiple people to talk to, just like when you're looking for a lab for grad school, right? I I recall very distinctly when I was um, looking for work outside of the academic research lab, I found um, a local organization. It was a university that was doing biomanufacturing. Mm -hmm. And I got in touch with the program director and I sent him an email and never heard anything. And I sent him another email didn't hear anything. I finally called the guy and he, he said, oh, great. Yeah, come on down. We can talk. And so I went and talked to him and I said, you know, I'm really glad that you were able to, to meet me because it seems like you're really busy. I emailed you and, and he's like, oh, yeah, I, I, it is my policy not to reply to the first email because then I know if you're serious. Now, I don't think very many people are like that, but, but it is the case that mm-hmm. um, certain people are in very high demand. They may expect this form email that, mm-hmm. you know, you send to everybody and so if you stand out a little bit and, and go to the extra effort, only if you really want it. I mean, if you don't, don't bother. But I think it's a way to show that you actually do really, really want to work with this person. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Dan, because I think that's a good point. If there's somebody you really, really are interested in, head and shoulders above the rest and working with, totally okay to be persistent. Yeah, the answer might be no, but at least you'll get the answer and not wonder. Yeah, and you know, I've even seen, and I've actually seen this with grad students who want to join a lab, um, but also with, with potential postdocs also. You know, sometimes persistence can be, be seen Pay as a off, positive. Yeah, yeah. and so oh, I'm not sure I have funding right now. You know, you could say, well, what's it going to take? Maybe we could talk about fellowships or whatever. Let's brainstorm this. Because, um, yeah. I've got two bodies I can bring. <laughs> my left body and my right body. All right, so the last thing she asked was the if there's any benefit to creating kind of an online presence. And I think, you know, what could be useful, and, and the answer is maybe or maybe not helpful. Um, but one thing that I think is useful really for anybody who is preparing to enter the job search is go ahead and update your LinkedIn page at the very least because people do actually look at that. And, you know, don't just put the bare bones stuff like, I went to this school and like I'm a grad student at this school and I went to undergrad at this place, but actually flesh that out, write a short synopsis that's really clearly written about here's what the research I did is all about and here are what my interests are and here's what I want to do. And hopefully that will match the types of things you're saying in these emails. Um, Cause, and you know, if you've done that and you've, done a really good job with your LinkedIn page. I actually have a link to my LinkedIn page in my email signature because there's more info if people want. Yeah, I think it is the age of the online presence. I, Whenever I see a job applicant come into my inbox and they have a link to a page where it's got work they've done or even just like a personal page about them, I will click through to that almost before I'll look at their resume because, you know, it's it's like a glimpse in, into the person's life and who they are, and it tells you a lot about um, mm-hmm. whether you'd like to work with them. So uh, if you have the ability to put up that presence either on LinkedIn or some other way, I'd say do it, and uh, you can count your clicks and see how many people click on it. And do you know how I knew Tessa was from Australia? How's that? I looked at her LinkedIn page. There you go. And actually, Dan, that tells me she is a PhD candidate in accelerator physics, So there's another kind of physics that I didn't even know about. Very, very cool. All right. So hopefully Tessa and and everybody else out there 
thinking about contacting potential postdoc mentors hopefully that was useful advice yeah i think I, what i'm what i got out of this josh is that it's going to be more work than just spamming a bunch of people but hopefully by doing all those processes thinking about the real work you want to do whether you need the postdoc finding enough out about the the researchers that you have something useful to say you may eliminate 82% of the people you were going to email in the first place and the ones you end up with are going to be much better matches so mm-hmm. i think that's Good advice. I don't know if we need to say it, but you know, don't waste time contacting people you're not actually interested in. Um, we should say it. Don't actually contact people <laughs> you're not really interested in working working with. There's a lot of researchers out there, so spend your time and your energy focusing on people you really are excited about. And you know, the other cool thing about getting a postdoc is before you sign on the dotted line, you're probably going to go meet in person or at least spend a lot of time talking on the phone or Skype before you make that choice. Very good. Uh, Are you ready, sir, for the etymology puzzle? I am ready. The clue uh, a few weeks ago was each day you should expect 50 to 70 billion of your cells to fall away due to this process. I feel like I should know this. Hmm. Cells fall away. I'll give you a hint. They fall away due to programmed death. Apoptosis? You got it. This comes from the uh, Greek apo, which is away, and tosis, which is to fall. Now, uh, since we're so late recording this, I actually can announce the winner on the air. Usually um, we record, you know, midway through the cycle and uh, we don't have a winner selected yet. But Justin wrote to say, yay, a puzzle about my field of study. I'd like to note that the second P is silent. No popping here. So Justin's referring to the apoptosis versus apoptosis, apoptosis. He, he goes on to say apoptosis, coined by Kerr in 1972, described in a footnote of the article and comes from Greek to define the falling off of petals or leaves from the tree. Huh. Turned out to be a nice fall. I like uh, that clue. I actually did not know that. Now, for the contentious part, you don't, you don't say the second P? <sighs> So, sometimes I do, sometimes this, I this don't. This is a big deal you in know, science, I, I think. I mean, I realize I didn't say the second P just now, but I think if I'm having more casual conversation, I've certainly been known to say apoptosis from time to time. And, you know, I've actually heard researchers who work on it also say apoptosis. Yeah, the, you know, I, I get it. Apo is, is one half of the word, and the, the pi tau, the sound is the second half so i understand that you would be tempted not to say it and i think it is perfectly acceptable not to um although the other places where we have those letters together in words like helicopter 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 yeah uh, and there are several other examples i think um we do say it and if you listen to the miriam webster apoptosis you'll hear it there so the pronunciation i think is acceptable either way is your favorite breakfast food potarts <laughs> no it's not is it no it's not okay so i don't know you, you you say it the way you like to say it and uh i'll say it whatever way it comes to me immediately hey i didn't have a lot of money in grad school i ate a lot of potarts yeah you probably did <laughs> good on the go Let me right, give you what the... do you have uh, congrats justin uh, yeah. what, what do you have for this week dan the clue for this week is in the late 1700s scientists discovered an element that they believed was critical for acid production they were wrong I'll read it one more time. In the late 1700s, scientists discovered an element that they believed was critical for acid production. They were wrong. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, actually an element, 
Once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. Justin, yours is on the way. I might get this one because you really narrowed it down. I know it's an element. So there's only so many possibilities. Yeah, num- so many choices. Yeah, I Einsteinonium. I got a... <laughs> In the 1700s. Oh, okay. Keep keep guessing. All right, Dan. Well, it was great to be back on the mic with you again this week. And a big thanks to Tessa for writing in. We love getting listener questions. And I have to admit, Dan, we actually have a little bit of a backlog of listener questions since we've gone to the every two-week format. Do know that we got your question. We try to respond to these, and we certainly have some of these on our schedule to get to in coming episodes. Uh, but we lo- we do love hearing from you. Yeah, it's great. Um, and I really enjoyed the, a very fall-themed episode. We had the apoptosis, apoptosis, the falling way of leaves. We had the pumpkin chocolate, What is what are the flavors I'm tasting again? The chocolate chai pumpkin ale. Yep, an excellent ethanol. And uh, everybody, keep in mind, we would like some responses to the things you're thankful for, what is going well in grad school, and a uh, reminder to go vote this week. And one thing I'd be thankful for, Dan, is if people would go to our website and click through our Amazon link. If you do some Amazon shopping, you can click through our link first, and you'll pay the same price you normally would, but we will get a little kickback that helps us with the cost of our show. All right, Josh, we'll see you in a few weeks. See you in a few weeks. Thank you.